sit down and grab hold of one of the Bibles nearby, and it'd be great to, if you could turn back to our reading from Galatians uh, 3 and 4 on page 1170 uh, in the Pew Bibles. And as you're getting back there, uh, let me just uh, remind you of our first reading. We're, we're going to focus on this one from Galatians, but let me just remind you of, of the first one that Rob read for us. It, it was an unusual meeting, wasn't it? Hottest part of the day, and she's coming to the well. Most people uh, would come when it's cooler, but she wanted to avoid most people. Unfortunately, someone was there. Uh, you can imagine her thinking, can't you? We'll just ignore him. I'll get the water and, and leave. Uh, but he starts a conversation, and he's... Oh, he's one of those people who's just really interesting. They start talking and you can't help but be drawn in. And, and she's drawn in. He, he seems to be talking about the big stuff of life. I mean, it starts with a conversation about water. But if she's understanding his point, he's talking about what makes life good. Now, where you find the kind of life that... Well, you know how it is on a hot day. It's the kind of life that, that's as refreshing as that long, gulping, cool drink. That leaves you going, that is good. I love that. And he's claiming that he can offer that kind of life. And she's thinking to herself, well, if she remembers the bits of the Bible that she's heard, she's not heard much, but she's heard bits of it. If she remembers it correctly, that, that's a claim that God made. He'd show up to rescue people and, and give that kind of life. And you can imagine her smiling to herself, oh, lucky me, I've met God at the well and he's offering me life. Chance would be a fine thing. But as we talk, he, he says in effect, oh, and by the way, just so you know, if you're wondering when I find out that you're so sexually immoral that people in your village think you're just cheap and worthless, so you're always wanting to avoid them. If you're wondering when I find that out, that I'll retract my offer of real life. I won't. I already know everything about you. And that's why I want you to accept my offer. Is that what you'd expect God to say? It's an unusual meeting, don't you think? But I think the most unusual part was verse 29. I've put it on the little handout uh, in with all the bits of paper tonight. If that's helpful, do follow along. I, I think the most unusual part uh, was verse 29. It's on the top of the sheet. I've been thinking about it all week. Uh, this woman goes back to all the people she's been avoiding and says, Come. See a man who told me everything I ever did. I think that's incredible. So would you have done that? I mean, honestly, think about it. You meet someone who's just demonstrated he knows every dirty secret about your life. Would you say, well, you must meet my neighbours? If you're at university, uh, would you say, really? You know every secret of my life? Well, well, come and meet my vicar. Well, let me introduce you to my parents. Wouldn't you have expected this woman to say, what, this village? No, 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 I'm, I'm not from there. I, I don't know anyone there. I, I'm from a village, a village miles away from here. Goodbye. See, someone knowing everything about us has got to be the most uncomfortable feeling ever. So I think we feel like that, don't we? Because we suspect that if, if people knew the dirt on us, they might use it against us. 
They'd have power over us, wouldn't they? And we'd be in a kind of slavery to them, and not wanting to step out of line in case they used that information. And certainly not wanting them talking to our friends. So what is it about Jesus that makes this woman so confident that her sin, and there is a lot of it, is no longer directing who she'll speak to or avoid. See, what is it about Jesus that makes this woman so secure that her sin, and there is a lot of it, is no longer calling the shots for how she lives? Just meeting Jesus is. What is it about God who in Jesus can give that kind of freedom to a person? See, wouldn't you like to know? And wouldn't it be gutting if you and your friends found that kind of freedom and then you watched them trade it in and go back to being controlled by sin and guilt again? Because that's what Paul is watching the Galatians do. Uh, you remember if you've been coming along these past few weeks, these, these Christians are being told that if, if you want to be acceptable to God, welcomed by him, well, of course you need to trust Jesus, but, but you won't really be acceptable unless, unless you reach a, a certain standard of obedience to, to Jewish religious laws. And they've fallen for it. Well, it seems so plausible, doesn't it? Maybe if I try hard enough, I'll be good enough for God. I, I can make the grade with him. And if you were here last week, we saw what the Apostle Paul told them. In verse 10 of chapter 3 in Galatians, he says this, All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. See, if you're going to rely on the law on your own effort, then well, you need to keep all of it. And since we don't, we'd face God's judgment. But you remember the Apostle Paul took us to the cross and he said, look, Jesus took the curse. He paid for it all. There's nothing we have to pay to God now if we trust him. And what was the purpose of all those laws? Why why give laws then that, that point out our sin? Well, Andrew, who was speaking last week, drew attention to it. It's verse 24 of chapter 3. The law was put in charge to lead us to Christ. That we might be justified by faith. The law's job wasn't to train independent people to be good enough by ourselves. But to convince sinful people who always think we can live without God that we need to rely on him completely. See, what happens when you do that? What happens when you say to God, I need you to save me through Jesus. I need Jesus to make my life secure. I'll trust him. I'll put my faith in him. Well, it's verse 25 of chapter 3, isn't it? Well, now that faith has come, you're no longer under the supervision of the law. The Lord's done that particular job. It's led you to the point where you say, I see it. I understand now. I I need to trust Jesus for life. And then the big change in verse 26. From that point on, 
You are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. A good friend of mine hates when people tell, uh, people tell jokes. She says uh, she never, she's never quite quick enough to get the punchlines. Maybe some of you feel like that as well. Hates it when they tell jokes, never quite gets it. So what she does is she always laughs when the joke teller stops talking. It just starts to laugh anyway. Our friends and family can sometimes be a bit mean. Uh, they'll say, Kerry, tell us why that's funny. To which she has to reply, I don't really know. Do you ever find that with bits of the Bible? Paul's just said, you're all sons of God. And you say, oh yes, brilliant. And the voice comes, do you know why that's brilliant? And you say, I don't really know. We'll leave verses 26 to 29 for a moment and come to uh, chapter 4, verses 1 to 7. We'll, We'll start there and then come back to that. It's the first heading in your handout. God's plan, slaves become sons. See, if you were brave enough to say to Paul, look, Paul, what are you saying when you tell us that we're God's sons? Uh, Paul says in verse 1, what I'm saying is this. And then he gives a little illustration in verses 1 and 2. And he, tells, he kind of tells a story of a posh kid. Eldest child of a wealthy family. The whole estate is going to be for him one day. He'll have responsibilities. He'll look after it, manage it, decide how things are run on the estate. If it were me, I'd have Highland cows. I like them. And I'd have a maze and cherry trees and a big lake, all that kind of stuff. And he'll also have privileges. He'll enjoy all the estate offers. He'll be able to to throw parties with friends. He can go paintballing in the grounds if he wants to, fireworks on autumn evenings, But he's not ready for those responsibilities yet. You see, he's an an immature child, not a responsible grown son. And so in the meantime, well, it's verse 2, isn't it? He's subject to guardians and trustees. Are they called the shots for him? And what Paul said in verse 1 is that, look, even though the whole estate is for him, while he's while he's under the care of these guardians and and trustees, he is, in effect, no better than a slave. If he says, I'm going out to see my friends, well, the guardian can say, no, you've not behaved well enough, you're staying in. Or if he says, I'm going to go and clean my father's vintage cars for him, or the guardian can say, you're not to go anywhere near them. You're not able to clean his cars. Or if he says... I'm going to go in and speak with my father now. The guardian can say, you've not done your homework. I'm locking you in your room until it's finished. You're not seeing your father. Jeez, he's no better than a slave. Someone else is calling the shots for him, pointing out his failures, saying what he can't do, saying where he can't go, but he turns 18. This is the day. See, he wakes up knowing This is the day that his father has said, from this point on, I'm giving you the responsibilities and privileges, the full responsibilities and privileges I promised. And so the son says, I'm going to invite my friends round. And his guardian says, no, you've not been good enough today. Or he says, I'm going in to see my father now. And his guardian says, you're not to disturb your father. He's not got time for you. So the son goes back to his room and continues to let the guardian call the shots. 
There are certain slang phrases intended to communicate total disinterest in what someone is saying. Uh, Two of my favourites, you may have heard them. One one would be this. uh, Talk to the hand because the face ain't interested. Uh, An eight-year-old boy in my street uh, let me hear that one the other week. Or the second one is this. uh, I'm hearing this and I want to hear this. Uh, They're a bit rude. But I think it's, it's kind of what the son should say to the guardian. So your responsibility was, was to watch me to the point where I was ready to receive what my father always wanted me to have, and that time's come. You're not calling the shots anymore. So any time the guardian starts uh, trying to tell the son what to do, any time he starts saying you're not to touch your father's stuff, the son's to say, talk to the hand because the face ain't interested. Or I'm hearing this, and I want to hear this. So how is that an illustration of the reality of sonship for the Christian? Well, look at what Paul says in verse 3. And here's what he says. So also, when we were children, we were in slavery under the basic principles of the world. I think he's saying this. I think he's saying this. God's always planned for people to live life fully enjoying him and the good things that he gives. But we just don't know how to handle that responsibility. We're sinful, and instead of trusting God, we always want to live independently of him, which is just disastrous. See, left in charge, we don't enjoy life. We ruin it. So God allowed sin to do its damaging work, and and then gave us his law to show us how enslaved we are to it. See, it's like it tells us off when we do things wrong. We feel guilty. And it tells us, look, God must punish sinful people. Don't be so foolish as to front up to him complacently. It's as if it locks the door on us, away from God. See, God allows that in order to lead us to Jesus so that we'll trust him and find life. See, what happens when we do that? When we finally grasp that we need him. And when the law's done its work of leading us to Jesus. Well, oh look, it's verse 4. But when the time had fully come, God sent his son to redeem those under the law that we might receive the full rights of sons. And he carries on, because you are sons, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. The spirit who calls out, Abba. Father. See, as soon as you've seen life must be lived trusting Jesus, as soon as you've put your trust in him, well, you're like the child who's come of age. God says, from this point on, I'm giving you the responsibilities and privileges of sonship. See, what are they? Well, he's redeemed us. He's he's paid for all our sins. Our guilt is no longer the thing that directs or defines us. He's transformed us. He changes us from having the door locked on that relationship with God into people who can walk up to him and say, Abba, Father. So here, by the way, is is the fundamental experience of having the Holy Spirit in your life. 
You want to know if the Holy Spirit is really at work in your life? Well, it will be this. You, you feel a growing confidence in access to God. You call him Father. You pray to him. See, you're his son. We live in relationship with him. Do you want to talk to him? Go ahead. Have you thought of a way to serve him? Have a go. Are you finding something difficult? Well, ask for his help. Have you got some, something wrong? Come and tell him. Would you like someone to meet him? Invite them round. You're free. You're free with God. But did you notice, Paul, Paul doesn't say in verse 3 that we're just enslaved to God's law. Uh, the phrase he uses is, is the basic principles of this world. It's perhaps a weak translation because it's really got a kind of sinister spiritual edge to it. And I think what Paul's getting at is, is this. In, in the same way, a, a child's guardian could take advantage of their position and be really mean and mistreat them. I think Paul's saying something has taken the opportunity that God's law and our sin creates. And instead of being led to Christ for freedom and forgiveness, it tries to lead you, tries to lead you to despair. You're aware of the wrong things you do and the, the voice of accusation starts to come. You're never going to be good enough. You were always a disappointment to your parents. You don't deserve to be around these kind of people. If they only knew what you were like. And if you ever think about God, well, don't bother because he wouldn't be interested in someone like you. You need to be a lot better if you want to speak to him. And very subtly, it's those voices that start to call the shots on life. So instead of finding the freedom of sons, you're left in the misery of slavery. It'll either be, well, make sure no one finds out what you're like. Hide it away. Or, or keep comparing yourself with people you reckon are worse. Gossip about their sins. That'll make you feel better about yours. Or, or try and convince yourself that your well-paid job or your family that appears normal makes you okay. Instead of enjoying work and family, you end up enslaving them to your need to feel okay. Or set yourself religious rules. I read four chapters in my Bible every day. That's got to count for something with God. Surely that will make me all right. Or you can go the other way, can't you? Well, I don't give a stuff what anyone thinks. I'll show them I don't need them. And if there is a God, well, it's his fault that I'm like this anyway. And you get angry with him. He wouldn't want to know me. Well... I wouldn't want to know him. And underneath it all, it's sin and guilt that's calling the shots. See, that's what the Galatians are listening to. So the voices are saying, well, you can't be good enough for God unless you try harder. Push your sin down. Hide it away. Do better than the real sinners around you. I'm sure you mean well, but but to be really on fire for God, as well as trusting Jesus, you need a further experience of the Spirit. And don't be too quick to approach God. Don't start thinking just anyone can serve Him. But if you trust Jesus, what are you meant to say when those voices come? Well, it's talk to the hand. 
Because the face ain't interested. It's I'm hearing this. And I want to hear this. See, don't live like a slave. You're a son. Now come back now to verses 26 and 29. uh, Turn over to the other side of the sheet. It's the second heading there. See, God's sons is free and secure. Paul's saying, if you trust Jesus, you're all sons of God. Forgiven and free. That's verse 26. And well, if that's true for everyone who trusts Christ, then Paul teases out some of the implications. Here's what he says in verse 28. He says we are equal in status. And see what he says? There's, there's neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you're all one in Christ Jesus. You're all one. Each year we have the, the Six Nations uh, Rugby the home nations plus Italy and France, they, they put on their, their own colours and they pummel each other. Uh, but once every four years, the, the British and Irish lines are formed. They take off their own shirts and they play in united colours. If you look carefully at them when they're on the pitch, they, they still wear their national socks. They, they don't stop being Scottish or English or Irish or Welsh. It's just that's not the thing that defines them now, is it? They're united. Look, when you become a Christian, you don't stop being you. You don't stop being either richer or poorer. You don't stop being Scottish or less fortunate. (laughs) You don't stop being a man or a woman. The Bible might have things to tell us about different roles that may be appropriate for us, but our, our status before God is not dependent on any of those things. The way God deals with you now is not on the basis of your reputation or your heritage or your bank balance, but on the basis of Jesus' reputation. That's how he deals with you. That's your status before God all the time. If you ever think well, I'm not good enough to be around these sort of people. If you ever think, well, they're not really good enough to be around me. Now, you're looking for status outside of Jesus. And you'll live like a slave. Enslaved to standards of achievement that are a nightmare. But look at verse 29. Paul also wants to say, look, we're equal in blessing." because we trust in Jesus and we're sons of God. Verse 29, if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. Why will God do good to you? Why will he bless you? Because you've done enough good things? Because you've managed to get through today without sinning too badly? Because you've confessed enough? When God is deciding how much blessing to give you, he doesn't decide on the basis of your performance. He's promised to do it on the basis of Jesus Christ's perfection. If you start to think that God probably won't bless me today because I got cross with my husband yesterday, if you start to think, well, I don't really know why they should expect to be welcome in our friendship group after all they've done, 
where you're living like a slave and not like a son. See, that woman at the well in John 4, with all her sin, and there was a lot of it, and met Jesus and found freedom. So much so that she was able to be open about her sin. Come and see a man who told me everything I ever did. She was able to be open about her sin and it wasn't calling the shots in her life anymore. She's set free. And she's living as a son of God. So just as we finish... Let me ask this question. The question for you to think about, a question for me to think about, is there in your handout. So, are you living like a slave or a son? I put a little uh, table down here, some things to think about during the week. And take it away, think about it. Let me just mention a few of them. Look at that first one. What about gossip? Now, here's kind of how a slave would live uh, they gossip, they confess other people's sins. They need to criticize others in order to feel right about themselves. That's where they find security. But a son is able to confess their own sins to others, finding that they're often wrong. He's eager to grow. I'll look down at the third one there. A, a slave was always defensive, can't listen well, bristles whenever someone suggests they may have done something wrong, only views unreserved praise as encouragement. But a son was open to criticism since they are becoming more confident in Christ's perfection, not their own. And because of that, because they know they're secure, they're able to examine their own failures, face up to them, and change. I'll look at the fifth one down here. A slave is, is always building a record of deeds at work and at home and with friends that need noticing and defending. He's upset if people don't notice all they've done. That's where they'll find their security. But a son, well, Christ's righteousness is their record. So standing complete in that and is learning to serve others, whether it's noticed or not. Ah, the freedom of sons is what God wants to give us through Jesus. Well, let's bow our heads and take a moment uh, to be quiet and think that through. And after a moment of silence, Ed is going to lead us in prayer.